Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Improving the Quality of Care for Patients Harboring ALK-Positive NSCLC, is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by an independent educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Welcome to our educational activity, Improving the Quality of Care for Patients Harboring ALK-Positive Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. Our faculty presenter is Dr. D. Ross Kamage, Director of Thoracic Oncology at the University of Colorado Cancer Center. Dr. Kamage? There we go. So disclaimers and disclosures. We'll be talking about some off-label and some research uh, data. Here are my disclosures and conflicts of interest. We're going to talk a little bit about molecular testing in non-small cell lung cancer and update you in terms of what you should and shouldn't be doing. And then we're going to focus down on an example uh, with regard to ALK-positive lung cancer. And there are now many, many different options. And particularly, we're going to focus down on the first-line options and how you might decide between these. Here we go. Improving the quality of care for patients finding and treating ALK-positive non-small cell lung cancer from first line to beyond. Okay, we're going to talk about what is ALK, why does it matter, and figuring out what you're going to start with and where do you go to next. So what is ALK rearranged lung cancer? ALK stands for anaplastic lymphoma kinase. As its name suggests, it was originally discovered as a gene in lymphoma back in the 1990s, and that would have kind of languished in the kind of small print stuff until in the 19, well, actually 2007, it was found as an oncogenic driver in a subset of non-small cell lung cancer. And because non-small cell lung cancer is much more common, it became much more relevant. So ALK is involved normally in the development of the gut and nervous system, and then it's silenced by having its promoter silenced very early in embryogenesis. It's turned on again and functions as an oncogene when a gene rearrangement places the promoter of some other gene, which is active in that tissue, and a little five prime portion of that gene in front of it. The five prime portion of the partner gene acts as a multimerization motif. So EML4, which is the most common one, is a structural protein, and it acts to bring together the ALK domains, which then start signal. And you can find it in lots of different ways, immunohistochemistry, because ALK is not normally expressed in adult tissues, in most tissues, uh, or fish, uh, routinely used. But we're going to be nudging you more towards next generation sequencing because really it's about multiplex testing rather than trying to remember to check individual boxes for molecular testing. How common is ALK? Well, in the incredible sort of French series where they really got sort of national screening of lung cancer uh, up, when, when I say that, I mean national screening of molecular drivers in cases of lung cancer very rapidly. I mean, they, they started this in 2008 and by 2010, they were testing 80% of the diagnoses of lung cancer in the country. Here we can see ALK running about 5%. If you look in never smokers, it's up to about 14%. So depending on what your denominator is, you can make it more, uh, more common. Now, uh, testing for it, you can see in the NCCN guidelines, if you have anything other than squamous cancer, it's suggesting that if you have advanced non-small cell lung cancer, you should do testing, which is part of a broad molecular profile. And that is so that you can pick up what are seven and as of Friday, eight molecularly specific uh, 
aberrations in non-small cell lung cancer, which now have an FDA-approved therapy. They are in no particular order, EGFR, ALK, ROS1, BRAF, NTRAC, MEDEXON14, skip mutations, RET gene rearrangements, and as of Friday, EGFR exon 20 insertions. You should also do pdl one testing. Now, if you have squamous cancer, they kind of almost recommend the same thing. They say consider testing. Now, why do they say consider testing? Well, particularly if you have an atypical squamous. So down the microscope, it's called squamous, but it's in a never smoker, or it's a very small sample and you can't rule out adenosquamous. Honestly, if the patient has had a 60-pack year smoking history and horrid emphysema, you know, and, and there's a risk of rebiopsing to get tissue because you don't have enough, you might want to think about it because the yield is going to be pretty low. But generally speaking, at least in my practice, unless there's a good reason not to, I'm going to be testing all non-small cell lung cancer histologies. Now, interesting enough, if you look at how frequently we are doing that broad molecular panel, as the NCCN suggests, well, you can see, let's, let's, this was a survey that came out in 2020, in your opinion, what percentage of patients with lung cancer are molecularly tested in your country? Less than 50%. 61% of people around the world were saying less than 50% of cases were tested. That was 51% in the United States. Of course, we all believe we're doing better because if you ask the question, what about the people in your clinic, those numbers drop to 36% and 10%. It's always the other guys who are doing it wrong. One of the things in terms of the multiplex testing, there are two, well, three main reasons for doing multiplex testing as opposed to single gene testing. First one is pragmatic. I just listed, because I do this every day, eight molecularly specific subtypes of non-small cell lung cancer that you need to be testing for. You're looking after lots of different cancers. How are you going to remember to check eight different boxes? So by doing multiplex screening and having sat down only once to confirm that those eight are actually in that panel, you don't have to worry about it going forward. Second reason is, if you do individual tests, you blow through the tissue quite a lot because each one needs an individual negative control. So there's better tissue utilization. And the third reason, which I think is important, is the health economics. We showed um, more than a decade ago now, or nearly a decade ago now, that the health economics in the era of personalized medicine are slightly different. It used to be cost of drug, benefit from drug, but now you have to factor in the cost of the screening. If you operate on the right-hand side of this curve, when the frequency of what you're looking at is fairly common, cost of the screening isn't very much. You know, you get a pretty, you know, high positivity rate. You're looking at something that's only present in 1%. You blow a lot of money before you get your first positive. So how do we operate on the right-hand side of the curve? Well, sure, you can play around with the cost of various things and you can try and clinically enrich, but really the sensible thing is to try and get a higher hit rate but by looking for multiple different things which are relevant. So multiplex testing has a health economic advantage. And indeed, once you get past about four analytes, next generation sequencing is cheaper. And so now I said there's eight analytes, so we are way past that tipping point. So if you're still doing single gene testing, you probably need to sit down with whoever your pathologists are and have a discussion about that. So what does uh, lung cancer look like? As I said, there are seven, and this slide is already out of date as of Friday eight molecularly specific FDA licenses, and you tend to look for these, um, and that makes your initial first-line treatment decision. Everything else is lumped together and has a conversation about immunotherapy or chemoimmunotherapy. As I said, you know, nobody is perfect. Nobody uh, is really sort of knocking you out of the park. Again, if you look around the world, the number of people still doing single gene testing when this survey was done barely a year ago 
43% of people, 33% of people in the United States are still doing single gene testing. So we could improve even given the skills we already have. But why does it matter? Well, because calc is highly targetable. In the first line setting, we have alectinib, brigatinib, and lorlatinib all preferred by the NCCN. Seritinib is licensed, but not usually recommended. Crizotinib is really yesterday's paradigm. We'll go into some of the subsequent therapy in a minute. Given all of these drugs are licensed in the first line setting, how do we choose between them all? Well, a lot of them have done head-to-head -head studies, at least against crizotinib. That was the kid to beat. So um, seritinib just went against platinum-based chemo, but you don't really need to know about that. We're going to focus on the ALEX studies. These were electinib versus crizotinib. Uh, that was done in most of the world. J-ALEX was just done in Japan. Alta-1L was brigatinib versus crizotinib. And then in 2020, we had two studies, one in Sartinib versus Crizotinib, which is not currently licensed in the USA. And then the new kid on the block, Lorlatinib versus Crizotinib, which is technically what's called a third generation drug. And I'll show you that this is really shaking up our thinking. Well, here I'll cut a long story short. This is the data of the ALEC study, Electinib versus Crizotinib, the ALTA1L study, Brigatinib versus Crizotinib, and the crown study, lorlatinib versus crizotinib, lined up. And they're lined up by the degree of follow-up, so you can at least try and compare like with like. There are subtle differences. Progression-free survival as assessed by the investigator, or as assessed by an independent radiology review committee. But here's the headline. The ALEC study and the ALTA1L study essentially had the same result. These drugs may have looked different in the post-crizotinib setting, but in the first-line setting, they both reduced the risk of progression or death, so the PFS, by about 50%. Whereas in the CROWN study, it reduced it by nearly 70%, as a ratio of 0.28. So on the basis of this, you would think this should be a no-brainer. We should absolutely be using lorlatinib as our first-line treatment choice. But I'm going to challenge that thought for you, because amongst Usually, you know, a bad prognosis, non-small cell lung cancer, ALK, is really a very different beastie. Now, when people started to look at these different studies, they started to say, well, you know, there were subtle differences in the design of study. What was the diagnostic use? Were you allowed prior chemotherapy? What was the rate of brain metastasis? None of those differences matter. Because if you look at the control arm, the crizotinib arm, it really performed pretty similarly, give or take a month or two. So there is one exception in terms of the study design that matters, and I'll get to that later. But generally speaking, I feel that these are genuine results that we can look at. So the usual idea in oncology is you give your best drug first. And I just told you lorlatinib has the best hazard ratio versus crizotinib, so it should be an obvious choice. But what if, what if that progression-free survival isn't king anymore? What if Overall survival matters, but then how do we assess overall survival and are there factors in the studies which might mess up our decision-making about that? Are there other factors to consider, including shared decision-making with the patient about their preferences and goals, given that we might be now entering the field in ALK of kind of luxury oncology of these more minor differences deciding on what the, the best drug for an individual patient might be? So shared decision-making, as you know, is uh, sitting down with the patient and having them part of the decision-making process, taking into account cost, side effects, convenience, all of that actually is perfectly set for these first-line decision-makings in ALK. And here's where I'm going. 
Okay, so in terms of the, you've got to use your best drug first, this was a really interesting study. So this is over 100 outpatients in a single center, um, and this is their overall survival. So overall survival in lung cancer 20 years ago was about 10 months for stage four disease. Here, the overall survival is 81 months. That's the median. I mean, just think about it. These people are now routinely, many of them surviving over a decade with stage four disease. This isn't your grandmother's non-small cell lung cancer anymore. But look at the figure on the left-hand side. This is overall survival by year of diagnosis, bracketed into three different groups. Now, it didn't make any difference, that's the headline, but why do those groupings matter? Because the black line represents uh, survival before there was any licensed ALK inhibitor. The blue line represents when only crizotinib was available, and the green line represents when these next generation inhibitors were available, and there's no difference. What does this tell you? Well, it might be telling you that this is a forgiving disease and that you can play catch up later. The patients just have to stay in the game. And so the idea that you've got to give your first drug first, your best drug first, because you don't have a second chance, may not be true. Now, if that's the case, the only thing that's going to decide on whether, you know, do I use the lorlatinib, which has a license um, in the second or third line setting, up front, or do I keep it for later, is going to depend on, for example, any evidence that overall survival matters. Well, uh, there isn't, I should tell you, there's zero evidence that sequence matters amongst these drugs. Um, the, the clue that overall survival is sometimes positive in a study is confounded. If you look at the study designs, which I said didn't make any difference, the only difference that matters is whether crossover was allowed or not. And for some countries around the world where these studies are heavily recruited, if you didn't allow crossover, what you were really talking about was you were denying access to the drug at any point in somebody's treatment journey. So there's a difference between, you know, if you, if you allow crossover and there's still an overall survival advantage, that tells you sequence matters. If you don't allow crossover and overall survival is positive, you can't tell if that's sequence versus just getting access to the drug in the first place. So let me illustrate that. So Alex, Aleptinib versus Crizotinib. There's the two-year overall survival. I'm gonna focus on two years because it allows me to look between studies. 73%, 65% overall survival. <clears throat> and that difference eventually became statistically significant. This is the ALTA-1L study, Regatinib versus Crizotinib. No difference in overall survival. Oh my goodness, Regatinib must be a terrible drug, but no. Look on the right-hand side at the two-year overall survival. Yes, they're the same, but they're the same as the experimental arm in the ALEX study. So i.e. by in ALEX where there was no crossover allowed and in ALTA-1L where crossover was allowed, when you allow crossover, you can bring both arms up to the same level. Think I'm just making this up? Well, remember this is ALEX, Electinib versus Crizotinib. You remember I said there was a Japanese study J. Alex, which was also Aleptinib versus Crizotinib. But in J. Alex, crossover was allowed. And now in the bottom left, there was no overall survival difference. So it's not the drugs, it's the study design that can mislead you into thinking that overall survival is really a surrogate for sequence mattering. And we really don't have that. So if sequence doesn't matter, then do we still have to go on PFS being the single best thing? Or can we look at some of these other factors? 
convenience, cost, safety, tolerability, and where do we go next? Well, I'm going to illustrate that with a case study. So here is a 45-year-old woman, never smoker again, persistent cough, pain in her left hip. Um, she has stage four disease, including bone metastases and a brain metastasis, and she has EML4 out positive lung cancer. The question is, what should her first treatment be? Well, we discussed with the radiation oncologist with regard to irradiating the brain and the bone met. And I think you can certainly have a conversation about that traditional model. But in ALK positive lung cancer, one of the things I'm going to illustrate is this drugs work incredibly well and incredibly quickly, including in the brain and in the bone. Here we go. Here's many of these drugs showing response rates in the brain of, um, if you look in the middle column where it says IORR, that's intracranial response rate. Resultant's not very good, but all of the others are running 50 to 80% response rate in the brain and prolonged control in the brain. The joke is that you could actually get somebody on a pill and they'd be responding in the brain before they got their first appointment with the radiation oncologist. So at least for some of these newer drugs, you don't have to reach for radiotherapy, especially whole brain. That's really the trying thing to put off if someone's gonna live for 10 years. What about some of the other factors? Well, convenience and cost. Electinib is eight pills a day, four in the morning, four in the evening. That's either good if you want to have multiple flexibility in dosing or bad if you can't take pills. Regadinib is one pill once a day, Volatinib is one pill once a day. There are different drug-drug interactions, so Electinib is probably the cleanest, and there are differences in cost, but it all depends on who exactly is doing the paying. What about safety and tolerability? Honestly, this is the thing that I think is mostly shaking up the idea of let's go for the drug with the slightly longest PFS. How do you assess safety and tolerability across studies? Well, you can look at the grade three or greater adverse event rate, but we have to recognize that um, not all grade three events are the same significance. A grade three laboratory abnormality may be different from grade three diarrhea. We also have to recognize that if people are staying on these drugs for years, meaning your PFSs for some of these things are running two to three years, that even low-grade toxicities will matter. You can look at the dose reduction rate of what might seem like a way of integrating that all together, but that's based on the rules in the study. The study may say if you have a grade three CPK elevation, even if you have no symptoms, you have the dose reduced. So in the real world, you might ignore that. And then finally, there's quality of life. And when you look at that, you have to figure out what's an effect on the cancer versus what's a side effect of the drug. These are the side effects from the first-line studies. And if you look in the top row, there are really a range of different ones. Some of them are class effects, liver function test abnormalities usually, which are not that significant, some gastrointestinal disturbance. Um, there aren't any that kind of, you know, really leave as a sort of, you know, very low quality with the exception of seritinib. Um, and that really has got quite a lot of nausea and vomiting, a lot of diarrhea, and so that, but then that's not the drug we're using. You can see that actually have an 80% dose reduction rate. But look over in the red box here. The dose reduction rate in the clinical study for the experimental arm was 19%. Remember that from the first question? 19% with electinib. Um, it was 24% uh, in another electinib study. Lorlatinib was 21%, and sartinib 24%, and brigadinib, I think, stands out as having the highest dose reduction rate, 29% in the first time they presented the data, going up to 38% with longer follow-up. That doesn't sound very good. 
but then you have to look at what the dose reductions are for. Mostly they're for amylase, lipase, and blood CPK elevation, none of which were symptomatic. And actually there was an interesting study at the World Conference on Lung Cancer in 2020 that said in the real world, once Brigafna was out there and being used um, as a licensed drug, people were ignoring these laboratory abnormalities. In the real world, dose reduction rate was only 15%. What about quality of life? I said it gets a little difficult, but let's look here in terms of trying to compare like with like. Alta-1L, Brigafna versus Crisotinib, Crown, Volatinib versus Crisotinib. This is where we start to pull apart the idea that it's not just about PFS and all these drugs are the same. This is the time to worsening of PFS. Now, some of this, you would say, well, you don't control the cancer in the long run with crizotinib, so that, that curve is going to go down. But the median time on crizotinib is usually running about sort of, you know, nine months. And the curves were separating before that. So there was a the suggestion that there was a cumulative side effects of crizotinib dragging down the quality of life, which at least the brigadinib wasn't doing, and then there's an effect on the cancer. Look on the right-hand side with lorlatinib, those curves don't separate really until people are progressing on the crizotinib, suggesting that while lorlatinib might be giving with one hand good efficacy, it's probably taking away with the other one in terms of some of its side effects. And indeed, lorlatinib is kind of the elephant in the room for the side effects. So about 80% of patients will have to go on a statin or a triglyceride-lowering agent. Um, there's significant peripheral neuropathy and weight increase, something like 20% of patients will increase their body weight by 20%. So that is like a celebrity diet in reverse, um, and it's usually from hyperphagia. Perhaps the thing that really scares people is that the drug has higher cognitive function effects. It can make people have memory issues, it can alter their speech patterns, it can alter their sleep, it can give them visual or auditory hallucinations, and can alter their mood such that they become incredibly irritable. Indeed, in the current label uh, for the second or third line, if you lumped all these things together, 54% of patients had some kind of a CNS effect on lorlatinib. Now, that means 46% didn't, and if you remember that, this is a good drug in some people, and also that these side effects are usually dose-related and highly reversible. However, it does make people pause for thought about jumping onto this as a first-line drug when maybe you can play catch-up later. Let's talk a little bit about playing catch-up later. So this is the lorlatinib data in the green box when used after these other next-generation inhibitors, so its current label, which is second or third line. You can see it's got about a 40% response rate and about six months PFS. If you look at some of the other drugs, though, initially they seem disappointing. 25% response rates and lower PFSs for uh, in sartanib, seritinib, and then the first case series of brigadinib used in the second line setting after a next generation drug. But later brigadinib studies showed much higher response rates. Honestly, what does this tell you? It is not telling you that this gives 40% benefit to everybody. No, it's telling you that there's a proportion of people who are still addicted to ALK when they progress on the next generation inhibitor, and some of these drugs still work on those mechanisms of resistance. If there are mechanisms of resistance that works on the drug you choose, then they do well. The PFS is a composite of those who are progressing um, on, on your new drug and those who are benefiting. If you look at the duration of response, the duration of responses are actually all pretty good with these drugs. 
Let's talk a little bit about mechanisms of resistance. Well, you can get on-target resistance mechanisms, so ALK mutations that prevent some but not all of these drugs binding, and the spectrum of mutations you get changes depending on which drug you're progressing on. You can see here that G1202R doesn't come up that often post-resortinib, but is a bit of a problem child because it's not hit by seritinib, electinib, or brigatinib, although it is hit by lorlatinib. But really the elephant in the room, and what I want you to hold on to, is just like the best drugs, like brigatinib or lorlatinib, used in the second-line setting post the next-generation inhibitor only have a 40% response rate, what that's really telling you is nearly 50% of people are developing a second driver. So nothing to do with ALK. ALK is still suppressed and some other driver is going on. So changing ALK inhibitors may not do an effect. We saw a clue from this from some nice data from the initial lorlatinib study. If you could biopsy the patient before they went on lorlatinib, after they progressed on the next generation ALK inhibitor, and you could find a mutation in ALK, they had something like a 60% response rate. And if you didn't, it was a 26% response rate. Equally, your PFS, if you found a mutation, was 11 months, and it was five months if you didn't. Now, the, what you can take from this is, hey, if you're only going to give lorlatinib, lorlatinib, or lorlatinib, you don't need to do this. However, we are starting to identify some of the second drivers, and so conceivably, we may even be in the deciding position where we do a biopsy to say, this is your best or next best treatment. The other thing to take home is you still have a 26% response rate even if you don't have a mutation, so clearly the mutation testing isn't perfect. Here's law, whoops. Um, as I said, if you find a specific mutation, you can look up tables like this one to tell you which drugs will work, so you don't always have to go onto lorlatinib, although it has the broader spectrum of coverage. But as I mentioned, there are second drivers. MET is definitely developing a role as best supporting actor as a mechanism of acquired resistance across multiple different oncogenes. Often it's by MET amplification, but also MET mutations and MET fusions can be mechanisms of acquired resistance in ALK. So if you rebiopsied your patient and you found an ALK mutation, you're going to go for another ALK inhibitor. If you found MET amplification, you probably want to add in a MET inhibitor. And that's a whole different story. The other things you can do if you get to chemotherapy is know that all of the gene-rearranged subtypes of lung cancer, ALK, ROS, RET, INTRAC, have exaggerated sensitivity to pemetrexate. We don't quite know why. This has been known for over a decade. And so if you're going to choose a chemo, which would probably be carboplatin and pemetrexate, there's not a lot of data that immunotherapy works in ALK. So probably the big debate is carbopem alone or carbopem and keeping the ALK TKI going. Nobody knows, but the assumption is if you had disease in the brain that was being controlled on the TKI, it might be a little foolish to stop it. So what does managing ALK look like from the extra CNS perspective? Well, if you have progression outside the brain, even sometimes inside the brain, on your initial ALK inhibitor, as on the left-hand side, first thing you're going to ask is, is it oligoprogression, an isolated area, zap it with focused radiation and stay on the drug? Let's say you can't do that. In an ideal world, you would rebiopsy and reanalyze with the same broad spectrum multi-gene testing that you had before. If you found an ALK dominant mechanism resistance, an ALK mutation, that's great. Go look up one of those tables and select your best, cheapest, best tolerated, whatever ALK inhibitor in the green box. If you find something else, which is a second driver, that you can identify and you can act on it, let's say MET, 
you can talk about off trial or in trial if you can get access to one adding in another agent to work on that second pathway but if you don't find a resistance mechanism or you find a resistance mechanism that you can't act on well sure you can try another next line alk inhibitor Remember, there was a 20% response rate to lorlatinib, even if you didn't find a mutation, but you should almost expect it not to work, and therefore have a close eye on your patients. You get to the point where that's not working, then it's really about pemetrexid-based chemotherapy, with the debate being, do you keep the TKI going? In the CNS, it's similar. So if you progress in the brain, first thing you want to ask is whether you can zap it with radiotherapy, SRS, and stay on the drug. You're not going to be able to re-biopsy that, although people are talking about sampling the CNS. Where are you going to go? Well, you can try another next-generation inhibitor. The is really good at getting into the brain. Or are you doing other fancy things like adding in bevacizumab, adding in temozolomide? These are all works in progress. We don't really have a good plan for that. Okay, to summarize, let's talk about molecular testing. Single genes, yeah. Fish, yeah. You want to be on next generation sequencing. All you have to do is sit down with your provider and say, What panel are you doing? Does it include all the things which are currently licensed? Thank you very much. First line out positive non small cell lung cancer. You're going to start with a next generation TKI. And honestly, I think you could choose alectinib or brigadinib or lolatinib. I think because of the side effects with lolatinib, even though its PFS is likely to be longer, that's really not a surrogate for overall survival it's the, it's really just telling you the time to when you have to next do something and i think a lot of people are still sticking with the electinib or the brigadinib at progression ideally you would re-biopsy and reanalyze and choose either another alk inhibitor or a rational combination or something else based on the result it's not a perfect world sometimes you have access to that sometimes you don't if you have to shoot from the hip you're just going to try and go for a broader spectrum alk inhibitor but if you don't know, you should go into it almost expecting it not to work. Remember, something like 50% of cases will have a second driver and have either a rebiopsy plan to hand or be ready to jump in with penetrated-based chemotherapy. You've always got local radiotherapy to fall back on, and we've already mentioned that chemotherapy should be penetrated-based. Thank you, Dr. Kamage, for that excellent presentation and for your dedication to continuing professional education. For our attendees today, thank you for your participation. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by an independent educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.